Iceland is hot, and for good reason. There's its trending music scene, like indie artist Kaleo. Otherworldly, says it best. Geothermal geysers, milky blue hot springs, and fairy-sprinkled lava fields. I mean, you can snorkel in the continental divide here. We did. You can walk on glaciers where they filmed Game of Thrones. All these things reveal to travelers a land I think of as the love child of the moon, the Arctic, and Western Ireland. I'm Liz Beattie, and this is Native Traveler. For me, here's the one big thing. Icelanders and their weird and wonderful island have been almost entirely left unto themselves for over a millennium, until a volcano, a banking crisis, then Instagram, turned them into a global travel darling, all this starting about 2008. Now, with this tourism boom, there's also been a boom in convenient tours on big-wheeled buses whisking groups off to nearby glaciers right from your Reykjavik hotel room. But there is just something deeply incongruous about experiencing this place en masse, a a culture defined by vast, unpeopled landscapes. That's why today we talk to experts about how to experience the Iceland of true Icelanders and how to be a mindful traveler in a country that's feeling, well, a little overloved by the world right now. And to that end, we kick things off today with a deep dive into the mystical roots of Iceland, the origin stories of these 300,000 or so descendants of Vikings before the world showed up at their doorstep. And by the way, I am going to apologize in advance for the few listeners who might actually know how badly I'm butchering Icelandic pronunciation. So sorry. Anyway, today's Native Traveler feature is called The Real Game of Thrones. Twenty-seven kilometers or 16 miles east of Selfoss, we find, quote-unquote, the gas station in the middle of nowhere where our directions say to turn left. Our destination, a small timber cottage smack in the middle of a remote moss and heather-draped lava field. We're near Hella in southwest Iceland. By the last kilometer, our two sons have evacuated the back seat and are walking so our mid-sized hatchback doesn't drag along the black volcanic dirt track. And with every muffler scrape, we ponder the merits of this road less taken. But when the cottage door opens, thanks to a key found under an elf carving on the back deck, all reservations evaporate. The snow-streaked peak of Hekla, one of Iceland's most active volcanoes, dominates our 270-degree view. It's a panorama untouched by progress since an unknown 13th-century writer inked the story of the first Vikings to settle here. That was about 900 AD. Long before J.R.R. Tolkien found inspiration for his fantastical Middle-earth here, just before Geoffrey Chaucer was penning the Canterbury Tales in Middle English, Anjala Saga, the jewel of the 40 sagas of Icelanders, was being committed to parchment. We find a 1960s translation on the bookshelf. 
Anjala Saga, or Burnt Anjala, is really just a tragic story of friendship between Prophet Anjala and the heroic chieftain Gunnar, mostly set in South Iceland. It's one of the most detailed and nuanced accounts of Icelandic life in the Viking Age. The saga center near our cottage reveals more about sites around Hekla that figure in Anjala. There's the dramatic rainbows of Seljalandsfoss waterfall. There's the silt-filled waters of Marka Flojot outwash plain. And the glacier-capped Eyjafjallajökull. That's the volcano that erupted and shut down transatlantic air traffic in 2010. Still, Anjala is just one of 40 ancient family narratives passed down orally from Viking times and finally written down in the 13th and 14th centuries. Uh, others of note include the oldest Exil Saga and the Saga of Eric the Red, revealing the brutality of the warrior king. It touches too on his son Leif making landfall in North America nearly five centuries before Christopher Columbus. Some like Anjala are touted as literary masterpieces, rivaling the epics of Homer and the genius of Shakespeare. Now, outsiders might see all this as just a curious bit of local lore, but for Icelanders, the sagas remain an important conscious part of present-day life. I meet Lloyd Birchall at one of Reykjavik's many trendy downtown cafes. Lloyd is a Canadian expat who married an Icelander and moved to Reykjavik a few years ago. He shares how there has been little foreign influence here before the boom in tourism over the past decade. That's why Icelandic lineage has remained so remarkably clear. Here's Lloyd. I want to connect that to the extreme tightness of the social web. Mm-hmm. You know how it is said that you're probably not more than six handshakes away from anyone? Right. Here it's like two. At, right. at most, it's two, right? <laughs> oh, oh, sure. oh, that's my yeah, cousin's yeah, girlfriend yeah. over there. Yeah. Um, and it continues to startle me. Like I've been here years, but it still startles me how socially proximate everyone is. Like I think you need the prime minister's two handshakes. Yes, it is. Yes, People have a different sense of like social location, okay? Where they fit in that web. Right. And indeed because uh, so many People have exactly the same names. Mm-hmm. If you meet someone, the, the, after your introduction to a new person, the next question is, who are your people? And you'll start to like paint the web, and very rapidly you'll find the two The sagas may not be pure fact, but for many Icelanders, they're a vivid connection to traceable ancestors and ancient roots reaching back over a thousand years. Powerful stuff. The wood stove is glowing now, my feet are on the coffee table, and I'm diving deeper into Anjala's schemes of treachery and violence. There's family loyalty, unbreakable friendships, bloody feuds, reconciliation, and prophecies fulfilled, all playing out across this titanic panorama of South Iceland right outside our living room window. It is stunning, harsh, mercurial, ominous, uplifting the sagas and this landscape both. So let's get down to some specifics on moving through Iceland, more like a local with less impact. I had a great conversation at the Sirius XM studios in Toronto recently with Mike Poppy. He's an Iceland expert for the Toronto-based trip planning firm Truffle Pig. They're amazing. Listen in. 
Iceland is growing so quickly in terms of uh, tourism that they just don't have the, the capacity to manage it. And it's really easy to build and build and build in Reykjavik, especially because there's not as uh, strict laws in terms of conservation. Um, so having all these bus tours leave out of Reykjavik when most people are and end up staying just for a couple of days ends up being the main reason that all these bus tours go. I mean, a lot of times what I tell people when they come in is that no matter how you go to Iceland, whether you do it with us, whether you do it on your own, on a, renting a car or with these tour buses, you're always going to have an amazing time. It's such a fantastic country. It's honestly one, probably my favorite place in the world. Um, but there are definitely better ways to do it. And uh, that's what we try to focus on is to basically try and get you away from those tour bus experiences because it really unlocks a lot of different options for you once you get out of Reykjavik and you get out of the tour bus scenario as well. What yeah. are you looking at these days? Uh, well, I mean, I, I was just in Iceland a couple of weeks ago for a conference, which is uh, which is really enlightening. It's been a couple of years since I've been back in uh, the middle of the winter, and uh, I was just shocked at how busy it was. And that's just the mm -hmm. middle of February. It's impossible to get hotel space, uh, even in Reykjavik right now, even in the middle of the winter. And uh, the, the the main reason of that is just as we said, like everybody's coming into Reykjavik, and what we're trying to do. You know, I've been having a lot of difficulty this year finding space in some of the nicer hotels. There's very few uh, that are really, really nice in southern Iceland and especially in and around Reykjavik. So what we're trying to do is to get people into the different and further flung areas of Iceland these days. Um, there's a beautiful area in the northwest called the West Fjords, which mm -hmm. I guess you could best describe as cottage country um, <laughs> in terms of for, for people who live in Reykjavik. Everybody always talks about their summer house in the West Fjords or their family who live up there, and that's generally where they go to get away from it all. Um, East Iceland as well is an incredibly beautiful spot that's very untouristed. Um, there is a ferry that gets there from Denmark through the Faroe mm -hmm. Islands that tends to bring a lot of European travelers, a lot of self-drive people bringing their cars from mainland Europe. But for the most part, the tour buses just don't really go there because it may not have all the unbelievably striking waterfalls and things like that, but it's still absolutely gorgeous and the people are just the same and in a lot of ways a lot less jaded in terms of tourism <laughs> as well so um we try to get people out to those eastern northern and like northwestern parts of iceland because it really you know the volume of people is a lot lower and uh, a lot of the services are a lot less overrun mm. um the accommodations are definitely a lot less basic and it just comes down to managing expectations and making sure that people know they're going there for a beautiful outdoors experience not for uh, a gorgeous hotel mm -hmm. uh, although that's changing as well now they're building those too so you mentioned the west fjords i'm dying to go there next uh, time i, I me go too. i mean it just it looks spectacular how do you how do you get people there do you fly them in or what's your you can drive there uh, but the majority of people we fly there's there's a lot of flights actually going right from reykjavik into the main town called isafjord mm -hmm. uh, which is basically the northern northwest or most northwestern city in iceland and city is a pretty loose term uh, i hear that flight is itself fine. part of the experience <laughs> that's quite an adventure uh, i did that a few years ago actually in february as well uh, 
um, <laughs> in the middle of the winter. And uh, it's one of those ones where you're looking at one side of the plane as you're on a quite steep angle, uh, looking at one side of the plane, and you look down and you see right into the water. And then the other side, you look out and you see a mountain that you're only, you, I mean, you're not dangerously close, but a lot closer than you'd ever be in any other airplane because they have to come in and do a big swoop down the end of the fjord to land there. Um, there was a couple people that uh, were shrieking a little bit on our plane, but uh, the pilots there are unbelievable. So. Right. And what are your, what are the things that you suggest people do to really sort of connect with the land and, and, and sort of local way of life there? Mm-hmm. Um, I find the best thing is get a local guide. And, uh, you know, if, if you can do it with a private guide, that's absolutely the best way to do it. Um, I, the way I tell people is, you know, you can, you can rent a car and you can drive around and you can meet all these amazing people. But the main thing is that once you meet a guide, you'll, you can drive the same route five, six times. But if you don't have a local and their knowledge and especially their knowledge of local stories and folklore mm-hmm. and just the people that they're connected to, you miss out on a lot. Um, we, I've had guides who dr- who've driven me by these same roads that I've driven by myself in a rental car and they've stopped and they've walked me off into the distance and found the most amazing caves and, you know, hidden hot springs and things like that, that, you know, us on a busy schedule, unless you're not going to just get out of your car and go tramping over someone's lawn, unless you know uh, that there's something interesting there. And obviously you don't really want to, unless you're asking permission. But these guys, you know, they know the farmers, they know the locals, they know where all these really interesting things are and where you might see a mountain, they might see, you know, there might be a whole folklore story about a troll who lives in that mountain who <laughs> came out and re- you know rescued all the sheep one uh, one year during a volcanic eruption or something like that and, and, and the country is just full of stories like that but and you those are the people those. that you're finding for them yeah i mean that's uh, you know the private guides are really i think they're the real the, the the key to to an amazing iceland trip because they just un- they're, they're like the, they are the key they unlock mm-hmm. everything in uh, in an icelandic trip and uh you know, and they make it just so much deeper and so much more special for you. We, uh, I have to tell you my Retira story, okay? Okay. Uh, it is my dream to go back and be involved in a really remote Retira. But I have to say that we did, we kind of experienced the antithesis of that in South Iceland. It started off, we went for a hike, came back along this road, came across a lovely little Retira. A Retira is a roundup of sheep around, uh, I guess, in the spring and the fall. This was the fall, so we were bringing them back. There was 30 sheep. There was a family, a grandfather, little kids, what? not all in Icelandic sweaters, took all kinds of photos. 10 kilometers down the road, we have a retire of about 75 sheep. Takes a little longer, you know, the charm of it starts to wear off. I'm looking forward to getting home to my Chardonnay. About another 10 kilometers down the road, there is a retire of must be 700 sheep. In fact, I think the last 300 of them must have been CGI. I mean, it was just like an unbelievable... <laughs> we were three hours waiting. There were school buses that had been sitting there for two hours, you know, letting the kids out, run and, dis- and disappear into this chaos. But I thought um, it, it was such a party in, in South. There was a lot, obviously a lot of tourism. It was a little bit of out of hand. Mm-hmm. But I was really thinking, I, I love the idea of the ritual of going into the mountains, rounding up the Icelandic horses. Is there a place where riders like me might be able to go and experience something like that? There are a few places that do that. Uh, to be honest, it's not something that we've had a huge uh, demand for. Um, but there are some places that go kind of into, out of the south and into central into central Iceland. Uh, there's a few families who let people come along with them uh, and and do this on a on a private basis. Mm-hmm. Um, they are difficult to schedule because they are fairly uh, fairly hard to get to. But we're we're also looking at other. So, uh, other experiences that are similar to that. Uh, mm-hmm. And just recently I've been doing research uh, in, in the West Fjords as well um, about collecting um, eider down 
I've been learning all about eider ducks and uh, the really symbiotic relationship that they have with local farmers. Uh, and there are actually a few farms and a few farmers that let you actually go out with them during the collecting season, which is generally May and June. And you're actually going out there, you're picking up the chicks out of the nest and collecting uh, just a, a small portion of the, duck, the eider duck down that's in there. And I mean, it's sold, it literally was worth its weight in gold uh, wow. back in the Middle Ages. And you can go and do this now. And these families have been doing this for hundreds of years. And it's similar in the same, in the same thing for, for, for the sheep. So you actually collect it out of the nest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like the, cool. the the ducks shed it into the nest to war- keep the chicks warm. And what they'll generally do is they uh, they you come by and you collect just the kind of the loose fluff at the top. And they usually put in a little bit of hay, which helps actually stay a little bit warmer mm-hmm. when it's wet, uh, which is a common thing in Iceland. And uh, and and you can actually go and you collect these basically bagfuls, uh, which they sell. It's the, I think Iceland produces something like eighty percent of the world's eider down. Wow. Uh, and that's something that. You know, most people in Iceland have never, or tourists going to Iceland have never even heard exists, but you can actually get so close to these ducks and they, uh, they actually nest right next to people's front doors because they know where people are, there's not going to be any predators and that they're safe. Mm. And that relationship has developed over hundreds and hundreds of years. It's the same with sheep. Um, they're able to really, you know, they're so comfortable around people because they know they keep them safe. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing for my bucket list. <laughs> uh, you mentioned winter. What are some of the activities that you think really reveal life in Iceland in winter and the connection to the land when it's white and frozen? This is where being in Reykjavik is a huge thing. Um, I mean, Reykjavik in the wintertime is just absolutely beautiful. It's cold outside, it's windy outside, just like it is everywhere else. But you walk into any home or any restaurant and everything is just scalding hot um you know it's just it's warm enough that you're in a t-shirt you could probably be wearing shorts if you're canadian um and uh and you know you go out for breakfast and there's candlelight on the tables Mm -hmm. uh, because it's not light out yet Uh, and it's a really great spot because you can because of all the darkness there's a lot of entertainment going on you can actually go out and see amazing live music there all the time and there are activities that you can do elsewhere as well i mean northern lights viewing is the absolute I think the absolute biggest draw in Iceland at that time of year. Uh, and again, seeing that outside of Reykjavik, getting out to one of these uh, further flung hotels is the best, puts you in the best possible spot, but you still can see them on some night tours and things from Reykjavik as well, um, whether by bus or with a private guide. Is uh, it far out of town that you have to go? Or? It can be. It's usually an hour or two, um, but uh, it depends. It really depends. Everyone has their own special spot. Uh, every tour company and every specific guide. A lot of times if you're going with the guides, you're going out to someone's private home. Um, outside of the city, which is usually nice and comfortable and, and mm-hmm. a, a really nice way to do it. So um, that's, I mean, I, the music, the out northern lights, um, and just there are, you know, some really cool activities. You can still do horseback riding, whale watching. Um, I just did a buggy adventure where you go out in these all-terrain vehicles. Where you're sitting side by side, not front and back like an ATV, cool. uh, and you're zooming through these ice paths at like 60, 70 kilometers an hour. It's a whole lot of fun. Wonderful. I can't wait to go back. Listen, I think we're running out of racetrack. So where can people learn more about Truffle Pig? Now, I have to tell you, your website is worth going to just to explore how far you can extend the metaphor of Truffle Pig alone. But anyway, <laughs> tell, tell uh, where people can, can find out more about what you do in Iceland and anywhere else around the world. Yeah, uh, the best, I mean, the best place to find us is on, the web, on our website, trufflepig.com. Um, and we are based here in Toronto, but we do have an, another head office in Burgundy as well. Uh, so we plan trips in about 50 different countries all over the world, and every person who works for us is a specialist in specific areas. So I plan in Iceland, and then Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia. Um, then we have specific planners who just do, um, you know, Spain, Portugal, Morocco, France, Italy, um, 
you know, Eastern Europe and uh, Scandinavia as well. So um, website is the best way to contact us. You can always, uh, there's, there's a contact form on there or you can just give us a call and that's, uh, those two ways are the best ways to find us. Truly can't say enough good things about the folks at Truffle Pig and really their website is an experience. Check it out. Up next, my chat with Dan Peterson. Uh, Dan is the co-founder of Iceland's hottest foodie travel experience. That's called the Reykjavik Food Walk, which is part of several food and drink experiences at Wake Up Reykjavik. Check it out. Your city is just eternally walkable. It's such a human scale. I mean, it's so inviting. Many, many capitals and big cities of the world are intimidating, but not Reykjavik. So a food walk makes sense. But what brought you and your background to uh, create this very popular experience? Uh, You're, by the way, first off, 100% right. Reykjavik is a uh, very walkable and friendly city. Everyone kind of uh, knows everyone and the uh, the crime rate very low as well. So perfect, perfect location for a laid back little food walk uh, for myself. I had uh, in the past been working at uh, quite a few restaurants here in the Reykjavik area, both as uh, as a server and in the kitchen as well. Um, and then from there, I I noticed uh, just how incredibly uh, exciting the food scene in Reykjavik is becoming. So I definitely wanted to still remain a part of that. And uh, that's where my kind of hobby, which turned into a business of showing travelers just my absolute favorite spots in the city uh, and some of the incredible food that uh, Reykjavik has to offer. So that's kind of how how it all started, and, and then it kind of took off from there. Well, great instincts. <clears throat> Listen, I'll I see if you think this is true. A friend of mine who lives in Reykjavik said, you know, one of the most amazing things of the, the food and cafe and drink scene that is, uh, you know, garnering world attention is that it essentially wasn't here eight years ago. I mean, the boom in tourism uh, in, in Iceland over the past decade has been amazing. What what have you seen in terms of the change of your, your, your foodie scene there in the last eight 10 years uh you're definitely right before uh before the banking crisis uh the tourism industry pretty much didn't exist in iceland and it was uh, both a mixture of the banking crisis we had a couple of volcanoes erupt and also with the uh kind of social media blooming and, and iceland being a very uh, photogenic and, and unique place that it kind of kind of started this uh, Iceland trend. Uh, but I would say it's, it's been a perfect thing for the food scene since with extra uh, extra amount of people in Reykjavik, uh, it has really created a lot more opportunity for, you know, creating new and exciting concepts for restaurants and cafes. So with the increased number of uh, travelers visiting Reykjavik, all of a sudden, unique bakers or out-of-the-box thinking chefs or, or mixologists could open up a bit more unique and, and special restaurants and they'd be able to find uh, enough people to, to try it out and, and, and keep it alive. It definitely feels like a meeting place, that's for sure. I was told as well that the financial crisis kind of had a quirky impact on the foodie scene. Uh, yeah, I would 100% say that... Uh, you know, even though importing has uh, always had a or, or been a big part of our uh, culture since Iceland is a bit small, uh, but you're absolutely right. Since the uh, financial situation went south, 
uh, it became a lot more apparent that locals started to look at uh, local ingredients and, and some even, you know, growing their own uh, fruits and vegetables instead of importing it, which uh, has been a bit infused into our uh, cafe and food scene with mm-hmm. a lot more venues, you know, putting emphasis on using uh, local ingredients, for example. And I would say our agriculture scene has uh, bloomed quite a bit as well uh, with all this uh, kind of growing your own, own uh, fruits and vegetables because now we're uh, experimenting with you know, growing our own Icelandic bananas, mangoes, and, and wow. even pineapples, which is a bit crazy, but uh, very exciting to see, to see. What other local ingredients can you can you tell us that sort of figure into the, the food scene there? Uh, a bit of everything. I would say, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, rhubarb, which, we, which we've been doing a bit of experimenting with recently, whether it's you know, rhubarb jam or, or some of the uh, newer kind of out-of-the-box thinking restaurants have been doing uh, rhubarb syrup, which is mm. quite nice as well. Uh, and then all the way just to, to classic uh, homegrown farm potatoes and, and carrots and, and everything of that sort. So And seafood, obviously. Uh, seafood as well, uh, a big big part of our, uh, our food scene, I would definitely say so, yeah. Now, a lot of your, your food tra- traditions are maybe n- not that glamorous, at least the, they may not sound that way. The famed Icelandic hot dog, the sheep's head, and fermented shark, which I don't, you don't even really want to know, uh, listeners, how that's made, <laughs> or I'll leave yep. it to you to describe. Um, yep. give, us, uh, give us a sense of the food experiences on your tour. Are there any chefs that sort of tackle those and reinvent them in a modern, yummy way? Um, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say uh, you're exactly right. We we do have some food here that aren't uh, exactly glamorous. Uh, it kind of looks, kind of depends on what you're looking at. Uh, but our famed Icelandic hot dog, for a, for example, uh, we of course have the uh, famous Icelandic hot dog stand, which uh, is known for quite a few reasons. Uh, it's been here for about 80 years. And wasn't the only, or wasn't only the first ever uh, fast food rest, or wasn't only the first ever hot dog stand here in Iceland, but also the first ever fast food restaurant to mm-hmm. arrive here in Iceland. And it's it's just a bit unique. It's a it's a lamb hot dog. Um, the ketchup that we use, we we twist it up a bit where we're using apples instead of sugar to sweeten it up. We have all these unique sauces, and then we uh, we give it an extra twist as well by using. Uh, fried onion, for example, to give it a nice crunchy taste. Uh, you had also mentioned the sheep's head and fermented shark. <laughs> Definitely something I would recommend trying out once in Iceland. It's kind of tastes like it sounds. It's it's not the uh, not the most appetizing thing to try out, but it has a huge part of our uh, uh, Icelandic food culture. Since back in the day, we only had three months of hunting season and the rest of the year would be pretty much preserving season. So we had to uh, find food that we'd be able to, you know, uh, make a bit sour and and, uh, and preserve it throughout the winter. So it, it kept us alive, but it wasn't definitely the uh, the best tasting food. <laughs> uh, but in, in our food tour, we tried to you know, focus on everything from must-try Icelandic cuisines or, or something that we found or we find you know, very unique 
and delicious, like some uh, first thing that comes to mind is our uh, rye bread ice cream, which is uh, one of the best desserts I've ever tried in my life, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a uh, really nice homemade ice cream mixed with rye bread, just a 60-year-old family recipe. Um, came about kind of as a film or as a as an accident, but uh, really, really nice. And then we we go from that from from the the good tasting food all the way to the uh, kind of traditional Icelandic food that doesn't taste disgusting. So we try to <laughs> avoid uh, you that's know, always good sour rats testicles and the yeah uh, sheep's I avoided and, those and too all that nasty stuff and we try to keep it keep it fun but also ingrained. Uh, to our traditions, but in a very tasty way. I well, say. I can speak to the hot dog and the ice cream. I skipped the testicles, sheep head, and fermented shark. Yep. You know, it's not just uh, eating. Uh, there's also a number of craft breweries uh, and, and other sort of drinking establishments that are coming up. Tell us about those experiences point, yeah. that you share with travelers. <clears throat> um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, our beer history here in Iceland is a bit unique. Uh, beer wasn't legalized in Iceland up until 1989. So wow. beer has only been legal here in Iceland for about uh, 27, almost 28 years now. But I would say in that short amount of time, we have just been absolutely crazy for beer. And uh, ever since 2006, when we opened up our first ever uh, microbrewery, the selection and variety of uh, different craft beers and, and craft breweries to check out has just been phenomenal. Some uh, of your favorites? Was, one of my favorite ones is uh, one that opened up quite recently, uh, about a little over over a year now, I think about 14 months ago, uh, a place called Brickham Bruckhus. Might be might be hard to hard to remember or spell that name, uh, but it's essentially the first microbrewery to open up in the downtown area. Wonderful. Well, we'll put that on our website for sure. Can you suggest places uh, outside of the city that, 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 you know, people might go for not necessarily even fine dining, but just really a, a, a great sense of a, a local meal? Uh, definitely. I would say, uh, you know, the city is, is definitely the, uh, the center of our foodie scene here in Iceland, but outside of Reykjavik, you're definitely able to find some a uh, really nice spot as well. One that's been a big favorite of mine is a place called Slipurin. Slipurin, and it's located uh, on a small island called the Westman Islands. Mm. And uh, what makes them stand out a bit is they, they only use ingredients found on this uh, small little island, all just oh, fresh, wow. fresh local ingredients. What would those be? To just to live pretty much anything they can find. I know they uh, recently came up with, because they definitely wanted to do cocktails as well, and uh, wanted to make a pina colada. But, of course, there aren't any, you know, coconuts here in Iceland. So they essentially went out, found some uh, some herbs on the island that had that coconut flavor and, and were able to somehow mix a delicious non-coconut uh, pina colada with with ingredients found in that Iceland. There are there are a lot about the old traditional recipes. I know you've uh, wet the appetite of many of our listeners today. So where can yeah. they find out more about uh, the Reykjavik Food Walk and the other experiences that you offer? 
Uh, I would recommend visiting our website, wakeupreykjavik.com. Mm-hmm. There you can find uh, all our info on our food tour or our bar crawls and beer tours, but it's also possible to find us at reykjavikfoodwalk.com. That's our show. Thanks to Mike Poppy of Truffle Pig and Dan Peterson of Wake Up Reykjavik. Check out our NT blog for more info on anything you've heard today. I'm Liz Beattie. This is Native Traveler. Till next time.